Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 8th of November, 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us northern exposure from north of the border. Appropriate. It's a bit chilly today, Mike, I think. Well, uh, well it is. But look, we're going to get warmed up very quickly here. Let's uh, let's get on with, start with, with Andrew Marr's show yesterday. And Susan Hopkins, who's uh, uh, from the Health Security Agency, was was speaking to him uh, and uh, well let's just listen to what they had to say just over two weeks ago the health secretary sajid javid warned that covid cases could go as high as a hundred thousand a day but instead of increasing they've been dropping yesterday just over thirty thousand cases were recorded deaths have remained stubbornly high though dr susan hopkins is the chief medical advisor to the newly formed uk health security agency now slightly grim sounding but a very important question who is dying so the, the people who are dying are the same people who have died all the way through. So it is particularly the older age groups, so the over 70s in particular, um, but also those who are clinically uh, vulnerable, extremely vulnerable and have underlying medical conditions. So I find this quite confusing because they're also the people who've been most likely to be vaccinated, indeed double vaccinated. We have very high levels of double vaccination among the elderly and most vulnerable. So how come it's, there's still a large number of deaths in that group? Well, as we've mentioned, the, the immune effects wane. And what we see is that, in, especially in the older or the vulnerable groups, those are the people whose immunity will wane the most. So if you're a healthy 30-year-old, then two doses will protect you for a longer period. And that's why those people need to come forward for their third dose as soon as possible. So back to the booster programme, are the people who are dying vaccinated or unvaccinated? So we're still seeing deaths in mainly in the unvaccinated population. So even a very small number of unvaccinated, and there's still about 5% of that older age group who remain unvaccinated. Um, but increasingly, because of immune waning effects, there are deaths in the vaccinated group as well. So that was very confusing, uh, David, as I'm sure you'll agree. You'll get your thoughts on this in a second. But basically what she seemed to be saying was that uh, you know, who's dying? Well, the same people that died last year before the vaccination program began. So nothing has changed as a result of vaccination. It's still uh, the, the number of people that are claimed to have died from COVID still seems to match the general trend in deaths uh, throughout the population and age ranges uh, that we see in any uh, particular uh, illness or, or, or whatever. Um, but uh, it's so the vaccination has had no impact. Now, the question then is, the, the claim there is that, uh, you know, mostly unvaccinated people are dying. Um, but this is very strange because when we look at uh, the overall all-cause mortality from the Office for National Statistics for England and Wales, here's the latest graph, which I think was published on Thursday last week, um, we still see higher than average mortality uh, at this time of year. And we still see that it's not COVID related, or at least it's only 50% COVID related. And we've no evidence to say whether the the, the deaths that are attributed to COVID there are actually uh, excess deaths or not. The, the ONS has chosen to put them above the uh, five-year average line, but that doesn't mean that, that, that those people wouldn't have died anyway. And if we look at uh, the various narratives running across the mainstream press, uh, well, I, I saw one article, David, that was talking about Australia and the fact that people that are vaccinated are dying. Uh, and the, uh, the Australian or the Guardian in Australia very much saying, oh, but they've got underlying health conditions. And yet when we were talking about COVID deaths uh, last September or last March or last May, uh, underlying health conditions weren't allowed to be taken into account. Um, so yet again, we have a, a government uh, agent, a government 
uh, spokesperson, this, in this case for the new UK Health Security Agency, who, who doesn't seem to be able to carry forward a sort of coherent narrative. It's, it's very strange, and it, it sounds weaselly. It, it, you listen to this and you think, well, is she just lying? Uh, is she see seeking to deceive? Because one of the principles she seems to be uh, working on is she's talking about COVID deaths, whatever they exactly are. Uh, she's not talking about the unusually high number of deaths in people in middle age in the summer. Uh, which is which, which is completely unexplained. It's not explained by COVID. It's not explained by anything else. Why are they dying? So we're just we're just not going to talk about that issue. That's not what she's here to do. She's here to promote a narrative. She's here to stoke up fear. She's here to um, nudge people into getting the booster jab. In this case. Um, and then, then it becomes very incoherent because yes, yes, it's mostly people who are dying who have been jabbed because because the, the the efficacy of the jab is waning, but it's also at the same time still the people who are unjabbed who are dying, and and don't question me about the uh, the, the contradiction I've just I've just come come across with. Uh, don't you worry your pretty head about it? Go and get vaccinated, and everything will be fine. This seems to be the narrative. It's it's very very. Uh, anti-intellectual, it's it, it's not coherent, um, and it's increasingly looking threadbare. More and more experts, as we'll come to later in the programme, are starting to speak out against this and express their doubts. David, my, my uh, thoughts on that lady speaking is if you bought a car, at the time you bought the car, the manufacturer said this car does 40 miles to the gallon at a steady 60 mile an hour, on the motorway, you take that as the performance of the car. If a few months later they said, well, actually, uh, actually, it's it's only about 35 miles to the gallon at a steady 60 on the motorway. And then a few months later, they said, well, actually, it's only 29 miles to the gallon. You would be complaining. You'd be taking that car back and saying that uh, it was sold fraudulently. But we've got vaccines that we were told point blank we're going to stop COVID. And now we're saying, oh, well, they wear off after a bit. That's your fault. That's your body's immune system. It wears off. Um, the second thing is, of course, this lady's not mentioning the adverse effects at all. And we're still in the situation where the MHRA has not produced any public data showing what it has actually done in order to check the adverse um, vaccine adverse effects recorded. Uh, against the reality of whether these were indeed caused by the vaccine. There's been no information published whatsoever. So the manufacturer of the car told us a lie in the first place about the performance of the car. They're then continuing to lie about their own investigation in the failure of their miles to the gallon performance. It's a scam. It is. So, uh, you know, we've been discussing this over the last couple of weeks, how the narrative doesn't uh, tie up. People seem to be presenting two uh, stories at the same time. So I saw this Twitter thread and I just thought it would be uh, uh, worthwhile coming, going through a, a few of these. Some of these I agree with, some of them I absolutely don't and explain why as we go. But this is from a Twitter account called PCR at a Thousand Cycles. Uh, and uh, so here's the first uh, contradiction. Um, I don't trust these leaky vaccines, but also 100% non-leaky vaccines apply too much selective pressure. Um, well, of course, 
those two are not mutually, mutually exclusive. Uh, they they uh, absolutely do make sense. There is plenty of reason not to trust leaky vaccines, uh, as we've covered extensively on this program. Uh, and of course, what also happens when people, uh, when there is a mass vaccination program, the flu vaccine is a perfect example of this. Uh, whenever uh, the flu vaccine is given for a particular strain, if uh, somebody um, uh, gets exposed to a different strain, then that, that actually can put too much selective pressure on the immune system, which means that they have a much worse reaction to the alternative strain of the vaccine. But anyway, if you want to uh, get more uh, information on, on this kind of thing, uh, do have a look at uh, the latest article from Dr. Mike Williams on the uh, UK column website, what explains rising cases amongst the vaccinated. Uh, the next one on this thread said, I demand eight to 10 years of safety follow up on these vaccines, but also why aren't there variant specific boosters yet? Well, actually I haven't seen anybody attempt to make these two uh, uh, demands in the same breath. So I'm not quite sure that that one is correct. Uh, we move on to this one, but what about the long time side effects of the vaccines, but also look, the vaccine effects are waning too quickly. Also, uh, nobody that knows anything about what's going on is making these two statements in the same breath. So this one doesn't make too much sense either uh, because, uh, well, clearly the vaccines, in fact, do not work. Uh, the effects are waning uh, very, very quickly. Uh, and in fact, people that are unvaccinated seem to have a much better ability to respond to whatever this is when it hits them. Um, so then uh, the next one is vaccines don't work, but also check out the work of Geert and Boss who says they're selective for vaccine escape. Um, well, this is perhaps a, a justified uh, criticism of some of the narrative that's out there. Uh, but of course, nobody's saying, actually, uh, most people aren't saying that vaccines don't do anything. Uh, it's simply that these vaccines uh, are not doing what they're claimed to do. They've been rushed out too quickly. They're not vaccines, actually, in the proper uh, definition of the term. Uh, and so this, this one doesn't quite Fit either, but actually the main risk, uh, as we've been highlighting for, for quite some time with these particular vaccines, is the fact that they've chosen to use uh, the spike protein, which is the you know the most toxic aspect of this uh, virus uh, to, as the, the key component in the vaccine. So again, back to Dr. Mike Williams, if you haven't read this article yet, please do so, Clotting and COVID Vaccine Science. Uh, the next one from PCR at 1000 Cycles says, the vaccines are unimproved and experimental, but also I'm going to take ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, monochloral antibodies, and a whole ton of unapproved experimental supplements to fight it. Um, well, uh, the issue here, this, or at least the, the, the sort of consistency in this argument that uh, PCR to 1000 cycles doesn't quite get, is of course, from a safety perspective, ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine and so on have already been through clinical trials. From a safety perspective, they've been used for many, many years. Uh, and the side effects are well understood, whereas the vaccines remain unapproved and experimental and the side effects to date are not uh, understood. So let's move on. We don't need proper clinical trials for ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine as uh, completely anecdotal evidence without any consideration for bias, etc., is sufficient, but also the clinical trials for the vaccines weren't nearly long enough. Uh, well, this is a bit disingenuous because of course nobody is saying uh, that you don't need clinical trials for ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine uh, as with respect to them being a, a prophylactic for COVID-19. What we don't need is, as I just said, clinical trials for the safety of these products because the safety of the products is well understood. 
there certainly do need to be proper trials for ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine uh, for, uh, with respect to, uh, to uh, COVID-19. But as we highlight uh, by Ian Davis here in this article, a hydroxychloroquine scandal on the UK column website, the trials that were done for hydroxychloroquine were done in such a way as to make sure that the uh, drug was absolutely found to be inappropriate for COVID-19 by deliberately overdosing uh, the participants in the trial. Um, so this was a disgraceful trial. People died as a result, and the people that carried out the trial really need to answer some questions. Um, and as for uh, ivermectin, uh, well, we wait to see what the results are going to be because there's a similar or a clinical trial going on with respect to ivermectin uh, under the principal study. Um, so this began in June, uh, and uh, well, we'll see what the outcome of that will be. Will we get a similar demonization of the drug as we did for hydroxychloroquine? I suspect we probably will, but uh, time will tell on that. Uh, but of course, uh, let's not forget that in the meantime, uh, government is uh, busy pushing through uh, the new uh, antivirals. Uh, so here's uh, Lagavrio, sorry, that we talked about on Friday, June Rain saying, following a rigorous review of the data by our experts, scientists and clinicians, there's no such rigorous review has been done. Uh, and they have decided that uh, molnupiravir, which is the active ingredient in uh, Lagavrio, is safe uh, and effective for those at risk of developing severe COVID-19 disease. And so the MHRA has granted its approval. Uh, David. Uh, just uh, coming back briefly to Dr. Susan Hopkins, uh, her CV um, and biography is mysteriously missing from the government website, but I was having a little look there. Uh, she has links to uh, Imperial College and specifically to behavioural change themes uh, run through uh, Imperial College. So uh, that's encouraging. Uh, it is indeed. But coming back onto the uh, uh, the um, antivirals then, we're delighted to be able to report that Pfizer has said uh, that its new COVID-19 pill uh, cuts risk of hospitalisation and death amongst high-risk patients by 89%. And they're going for FDA authorization by Thanksgiving. Um, now, this is separate to the one that's been given approval in the UK, which is uh, a Merck product. So this is two of the big pharma companies with uh, uh, new profit-making antivirals suddenly appearing. Is this because the vaccines aren't working? Well, I don't know. But anyway, we uh, move on back to PCR at 1,000 cycles. Uh, so the next uh, problem, narrative problem that he is, uh, they are trying to highlight is lockdowns don't work, but also what happened to flu last year? Well, this, of course, uh, would be correct if the claim was that flu disappeared as a result of lockdowns. And that certainly is the claim that the official narrative is attempting to present, but uh, without any massive evidence to demonstrate it. So uh, this is scientific. American flu has disappeared worldwide during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, the public health measures that slow the spread of the novel coronavirus work really well on influenza was their claim. Uh, and uh, of course, we've shown this many times, uh, what was going on with uh, global circulation of influenza. Uh, and... Uh, as we saw in 2020 and 2021, that completely uh, disappeared. So um, quite, there's been no definitive definition as to why it disappeared uh, at this point. Let's uh, move on to uh, PCR at a thousand cycle. Just before we move on, why it disappeared? Because mainly, at least my argument is that mainly it was recategorized as COVID-19. Yes, yes. And, and because of the mass testing, uh, that the, the attribution was given to COVID-19 first before there was any test for influenza. But anyway, uh, PCR to 1,000 cycles goes on to say, 
It's like the flu, except it's 99.99999% survivability, but also it's a dangerous bioweapon engineered in a Wuhan lab. This, I think this one is absolutely justified. Um, there's no evidence whatsoever, except for claims by the likes of uh, uh, um, Richard Dearlove and so on, that, uh, that uh, anything came out of the Wuhan lab, but we wait and see for that evidence to appear. Uh, and then this one, uh, the flu killed 50 million people in 2018 and 2019 with an average age of death by 28, said Tony Heller. Uh, by contrast, the average age of death from COVID-19 is 79. Actually, it's 83 uh, with multiple comorbidities. So uh, you're correct. COVID-19 does not affect the body like the flu. So this was uh, a tweet from Tony Heller in May this year, uh, really highlighting that they are making the point. Yeah, I just wanted to add, Mike, that 1918-1919 flu epidemic there, people saw it. It was visible. It was destroying families. People were dying and people were seeing their relatives desperately sick and dying. By contrast, what's happened around us, the key bit is that very, very few people have experienced what we're supposedly experiencing as a pandemic. So Right. I mean, I mean, obviously, you know, social distancing and so on, these things, if you're actually in a real pandemic, these things have value. But when there is no real pandemic, then you're shutting down your economy for no particular reason. That's really the point here, isn't it? So uh, tw PCR at the thousand cycles goes on to say germs are tiny and go straight through masks. But also when you exhale, the germs are trapped by the mask. So they reinfect you. Well, of course, that's disingenuous as well, because the f point one, germs and tiny and goes straight through the mask. We're talking about viral particles here. But part point two, when you exhale, germs are trapped by the mask. Well, those are uh, uh, not viral particles. That's other kinds of uh, categories bacteria. of germ bacteria. Thank you. But the, the word escaped me there for a second. So obviously, that, that there's somewhat difference in scale there. Uh, so that's a bit disingenuous. Goes on to say, uh, with another one here, a small fragment of viral genome, uh, transiently and locally expressed is very, very risky, but also an entire virus replicating uh, exponentially for weeks at a time is just fine. Well, that comes back to the point uh, from earlier on with respect to the spike protein and particularly the body's response to the entire virus. So the body has a much better chance of responding to an entire virus uh, than it does to uh, one particular fragment of it particularly one that's particular, that's toxic. Uh, and the next one, uh, how many boosters are you getting versus uh, you should be taking vitamin D every day, in which case you'll need magnesium and probably vitamin K2 as well uh, in your face, big pharma. And the suggestion here is uh, that, you know, there's an equivalence here, uh, and which of course there isn't because uh, what those other things are, are supplements which are naturally occurring. Well, they may, they may be manufactured for the purposes of taking a supplement, but it's not... Uh, quite such the same medical intervention. So uh, you know, there was an attempt there, David, to, uh, to, to, to push forward uh, the idea that there's inconsistencies on both sides of this argument. And to some degree, uh, I would say that there were one or two of those uh, uh, inconsistencies highlighted by that, uh, that string of tweets, which are justified, but the rest aren't. They're misrepresentative. And, uh, uh, and really, this is part of the problem with the whole argument, because uh, uh, people are misrepresenting each other's arguments to, to a large degree. Yes, and there's a lot of unknowns. I mean, we're seeing even from uh, some of the experts that we are following, 
uh, highly qualified and who have now had the courage to essentially set light to their own career path by speaking what they, they regard as the truth about the risks of uh, the COVID-19 vaccination programme. Now, even there, there's a wide range of opinions. Um, and all of those opinions are based on some evidence and logic and reason uh, and a considerable amount of expertise, but they're, they're different because we simply don't know the outcomes. That's part of the issue with it being a, an experimental drug and, a, and a entirely novel technology. Uh, we've never come this way before. We've never sought to vaccinate the entire world in this way uh, in the history of humanity, and we don't know what the outcomes are going to be. Um, so there's going to be inconsistencies and there's going to be contradictions uh, that relate simply to the uncertainty. Uh, indeed. So let's uh, move on, David, with, well, this headline, Why GoFundMe Deleted This Grieving Father's Fundraiser After His Son's Death. Yes, so this is a story from America, Ernest Ramirez. Uh, his son died five days after receiving the Pfizer vaccine. He wants to tell his story so that parents who um, might be thinking of doing what he did will be warned. Uh, but GoFundMe were not keen on this happening. Um, uh, the, the fee stories, that's the Foundation for Economic Education uh, reports here, um, uh, that... Uh, uh, Aresto's death, um, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention announced that atypical levels of heart inflammation have been observed in some patients following the COVID-19 vaccination, particularly in young men receiving the second dose of mRNA vaccine. Uh, Deputy Director of CDC Immunization Safety Office told an FDA advisory group that 226 cases of myocarditis or pericarditis have been confirmed in young people, uh, people younger than 30 who had taken the vaccine. Normally, fewer than 100 would be expected in this age group. Um, adding that uh, there, was, there was clearly um, problems stemming from the vaccine. Um, and uh, Fee here reports, uh, following the death of his son, Ramirez decided to raise awareness around the issue. So he launched a GoFundMe page, but soon found his page deleted for prohibited conduct and his donations forfeited. So if you're the grieving father and you've lost your son to uh, the COVID-19 vaccination and you want to ex exercise your free speech to warn other patients so they don't go through the pain that you've gone through, uh, you will be silenced and uh, your money will be stolen. Uh, that's quite a policy from GoFundMe. Uh, we have a small video here uh, of uh, Mr. Ramirez talking about his son. I was a father of a 16-year-old son, a single parent. I raised my boy since he was a baby. He meant the world to me. I got the vaccine to protect my son. And uh, after in March, April, they're announcing how it was safe for teenagers. Me and my son have never been apart. We're always together. He was my best friend. I always told him it was being you against the world. He joined ROTC in high school. He was always full of smiles. Anybody that knew my son would see he was happy 
Uh, I wasn't rich, but I gave him everything he wanted. We didn't lack for anything. We used to go fishing, camping, do everything. We got the Pfizer vaccine because I thought it was to protect him. I thought it was the right thing to do. It was like playing Russian roulette. My government lied to me. They said it was safe. Next week is his birthday. You know what I'm going to celebrate his birthday at? While everybody, once we leave here, they're going to forget about what we're doing or what they talk about, what we said here. They're going to be enjoying time with their family and kids. Thanksgiving, I'm going to spend at the cemetery. Christmas at that cemetery. They need to quit pushing this on their children. I'm, I lost mine. Y'all need to protect yours. They're, they're, they're trying to target the 5 to 12-year-olds. We're going to have more deaths in our hands than they plan. And they say it's worth the risk. It wasn't worth the risk. So he said there, my government lied to me. They said it was safe. And this is very much... The, the key point, because the government know that safe is a relative measure, that they know that there's risk. They know that saying it's safe means that accepting there's going to be fatalities. They just chose not to tell the public. They just repeated it's safe, it's safe, it's safe. And the public believed them. And how many, how many stories are we going to have like that man um, having lost a loved one to a lie? Right? If it's based on a lie, it's not informed consent. This is the problem. Yeah, it's it's tragic, and I'm almost wondering what to say over this one. Of course, we played out uh, the testimony of a lady called Nicola talking about her husband paralysed from the neck down, and that resulted in the UK column being banned from YouTube. So if you tell the truth about the suffering and death as a result of vaccines, the next thing is that you are censored um, for them to take the money that had already been donated, that is uh, wicked, I think is the right way of describing it. But I'm going to state again that we need to focus on the MHRA because to date, despite uh, over a million adverse effects and thousands of deaths, the MHRA has not produced one single sheet of documentary evidence showing what action they have taken to investigate the adverse effects of of vaccines. That is a fact. So the MHRA has got to be held, in UK at least, has got to be held fully culpable. Uh, next we go to an Australian academic, uh, Nikolai Petrovsky, who is a professor, was, he's been mysteriously dismissed, it would appear, uh, and who has been involved in the development of vaccines and is very much an expert in that field. Uh, this is him expressing his concerns over uh, current policy regarding COVID-19 vaccination. Passionate about vaccines, you know, obviously it's hard when I have to say that as a vaccine developer, I am not fully confident about what's happened over the last 18 months. And I'm not the only vaccine developer in the world who is extremely uncomfortable right now. Um, 
and, and as I say, that's really hard to say because it could be misconstrued, but it's a fact. Um, and, and we have a situation where we have some very new technologies um, in their infancy, and, and that is the mRNA vaccines and the adenoviral vector vaccines, which are the only ones that they, you're being forced to have, or, or certainly some of us are being forced to have, uh, to remain in employment. Uh, and the question around, well, what level of confidence do we have that they have been through the usual process, which is usually 10 to 15 years of rigorous testing in you know, just thousands of people. Now, those thousands of people accept the risk because they're in a clinical trial. They're given a very extensive warning, this could kill you, this could maim you, and they still sign up and agree to that process. And then they followed for 5, 10, 15 years. And if they survive and there are no terrible occurrences, uh, then regulators will you know, look at all of that data and approve the product. Now, that hasn't happened in this situation, which is really a first. And, and so you know, we all have to sit back and say, well, you know, should then everyone who gets these vaccines be signing an informed consent form, as if they're in a clinical trial? Now, my personal perspective is, you know, first, no harm, and two, the principles of informed consent. And that's, that's the key point, isn't it, David? First, no harm. First, no harm, and secondly, informed consent. I, there has been harm, and there has absolutely not been informed consent. You cannot possibly have informed consent when it's no job, no job. That is the very definition of failure to have informed consent, because it is manifestly coercive. Okay, so keep going. So, um, the, uh, this, next, this next piece, just I want to highlight again, this is Dr. Adam Finn. Right? So he's from the UK's Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation, G, uh, the JCVI. And he's talking about um, significant uncertainties um, around vaccinating children. Right? And the panel um, concluded that despite relative rarity of adverse conditions affecting children in the short term, there are too many unknown risks over the long term. So everything that is that is coming out of even the establishment scientific figures, the panels appointed by the government on the government payroll to look after safety, the people who are developing vaccines and who obviously have a, a long-term established um, relationship with, with the pharmaceutical industry in doing that, even these establishment figures are coming out and saying there's a huge amount of uncertainty here. It's a huge amount we don't know. We're taking huge risks here. And yet, the narrative from, um, uh, from the government, from people like uh, Dr. Susan Hopkins, um, from the politicians, and from those agencies coercing people and threatening their livelihoods, is there is, it's safe and effective, and you are, you're an outrageous conspiracy theory to harbour any doubts. How dare you? You vaccine denier, you anti-vaxxer. The government's position is simply not credible, and asking questions is not only uh, essential, but it's been it's been shown to be um, forced on even the people who you might think would be least inclined to ask questions because they're most committed to the government narrative or to the vaccine industry. Okay, so let's move back to the United States then. And uh, Texas Attorney General tweeting out, uh, yesterday I sued the Biden administration over its unlawful OSHA vax mandate. 
Yes, so the, the, the vaccine mandate came out um, on, I think, Friday. And, and it, it lasted until Saturday, right? So here the, the Texas Att Attorney General's uh, tweeting out, you know, we won, right? Now, uh, that is a headline from uh, the end of the Second World War in the New York Times, I think it was, uh, we won. So th this is this is being seen by the Texas Attorney General as a hugely significant point, right? Um, so the actual um, uh, output from the court is here, the petition for the review of Occupational Safety and Health Administration Emergency Temporary Standard. Uh, before the court is a petitioner's emergency motion to stay the enforcement of the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. And um, uh, November 5, yeah, it was Friday, November 5 emergency temporary standard. Because the petitions gave cause to believe that there are grave statutory and constitutional issues with the mandate, the mandate is hereby stayed pending further action by this court. So that that is uh, Biden's attempt to coerce people into getting vaccinated, stopped by the courts, at least for the moment. We'll see what sort of spine they have. Um, but we see here that limited though the benefit is if you have a constitution if you have a bill of rights if you have some courts that will protect the very core of your country's essence in terms of what it believes is true uh, you can have some basis for resisting tyranny uh, okay and just to, to finish off this segment then uh, even the mainstream media now uh, having to deal with this issue so in the UK so here's the mail online this morning NHS care worker 36 posts emotional video after losing her job uh, because she refused to get a vaccinated as hundreds of care home homes face closure over new rules compelling staff to be double jabbed with 60,000 workers set to quit or be fired uh, and this was Lee Louise uh, Ackister who was uh, as the mail reports here, fired from an NHS care home, uh, Alderson House in Hull, because she had concerns about the jab. So my question then is, you know, how long can this go on? We already have a care system for particularly old age care, which is under massive stress and strain uh, with not enough places and not enough staff. And we're going to get rid of 60,000 more people. Um, Where is that going to leave the elderly? Well, it's going to leave the elderly to die. But uh, according to the government, as long as they have a, quote, good death, this is fine. Let's get rid of the elderly because that saves the government a lot of money in their ongoing care and pensions. Uh, there is a deliberate policy in place. My view is there's a deliberate policy in place by the British government to kill off elderly people. And they've killed hundreds of thousands of them uh, over the years. And they are still going strong. Um, okay, let's move on then. And uh, if you'd like to support the UK Column, uh, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community. There are options to help us out there, uh, including a link to the donate page if you don't know how to find that already. And also please uh, do uh, share our material on the various platforms, including brand YouTube, uh, Rumble, BitChute, Odyssey, and so on. And of course, the UK Column website itself. Uh, and also a continuing thank you to everybody that uh, is can, still buying uh, hoodies for the winter. And thank you for the uh, very positive uh, feedback that's yes. come in from a number of people who've bought those uh, hoodies. Uh, well, a big thank you. We're continuing to monitor the uh, funder for David Noakes, now up to 
575. Very big thank you to everybody who's uh, supporting David. Remember that David's work with GCMAF, nobody was uh, hurt, nobody died, but the MHRA has pursued him and pursued him and pursued him, and he remains in prison. But that same MHRA uh, refuses to carry out its job of protecting public, public safety by looking into those vaccine adverse reactions. So sheer hypocrisy by the MHRA. David stood up against them. He's paid the price if you want to help him and uh, help get him out of prison uh, as quickly as we can, then he needs further support with this fundraiser. Uh, and just to uh, remind everybody or to let people know, this is not a UK column fundraiser. This is the family that is fundraising here. Yes, it's David's son and his daughter, Andrew and Jessica, have put the fundraiser together. So we are fully supporting the family. Um, OK, now, online safety bill uh, continues to be scrutinised, in inverted commas, by the uh, Online Safety Bill Scrutiny Committee, headed up by Damien Collins, uh, who, of course, is, uh, well, very much involved in the whole raft of organisations that are pushing forward this uh, agenda to shut down any kind of counter-government narrative on the internet. Uh, and on Friday, they were listening to uh, Nadine Dorries, who's the Secretary of State uh, for Digital Culture, Media and Sport. She was giving... Uh, evidence to the uh, to the committee, uh, and so uh, she said the delay to criminal prosecutions because this is part of the the bill as it in as it is in draft form that if you're uh, a director or an employee of of a, a social media company you could face criminal prosecution if the wrong kind of content stays on the platforms. Um, so the the current uh, draft of the legislation says that social media companies would have two years from the bill passing into law, uh, into legislation, that is, uh, it, to get used to this idea of criminal prosecutions and to set up pr uh, procedures to do that. So she's not happy with that two years. Uh, and she's saying that it's nonsense. Um, so she will shorten it to three to six months uh, in the draft, which finally gets laid before Parliament. Um, she said that the social media companies know that they're doing wrong, uh, well, I think they do know that they're doing not wrong, but not quite for the reasons that she's suggesting, because the, uh, the, the censorship on there is already pretty draconian. Uh, and then her colleague, uh, Chris Phillip, uh, who's junior minister, said that the platforms have no regard or scant regard for protecting people. It's completely unacceptable and irresponsible. So it's, it's very clear uh, where this is going. Um, and then uh, the next uh, quote from the Doris here is uh, the question of online harm and how it's defined in the draft legislation, because of course it's not really defined, although she claims it's quite clear. Um, and that is the definition is of an online harm. If it causes physical or psychological injury, then of course it wouldn't be allowed. Um, so David, before we move on to the second definition that she talked about, um, do you find that definition satisfactory? Um, not really. Uh, we all we, we're seeing more and more uh, definitions that are not satisfactory. In fact, I start to wonder whether we can define anything anymore. Uh, well, indeed. So let's uh, look at what the definition of societal harm, which is also mentioned in the bill, might be. Uh, well, that's too complex to put into law. So if it, if a definition of something is too complex to put into the legislation, David, how is it possible for the legislation to do its job? Uh, basically, what that means is that we are going to be forced into the situation where uh, there's perhaps uh, decisions made by social media companies and others which are viewed as being uh, too draconian 
Uh, and then it's going to require people to take such things to the courts to make a decision and to interpret the legislation. Yes, and, and the vagueness is intentional. Uh, we, we saw this with name person, right? It was all based on well-being, which wasn't defined. So it was whatever you wanted it to be. The, the societal harm is whatever you want it to be. It means that the definition comes later when it comes through policy. We put in some vague wording now, and trust us, pass all the legislation, give up your rights, and then once we, once we explain how we're going to administer this new legislation, then the de facto definition will become apparent. Not before. It's, it's, um, it's, it's a, in terms of your rights, it's, it's a blank check. Yes. Well, it says it all. What are we dealing with? I think we're dealing with corruption in the UK's political uh, system. We're not the only people to think this. Let's have a look at the Guardian headline here. I've lived under corrupt regimes. The cynicism stalking Britain is all too familiar. And that's by the journalist Nazreen Malik. Uh, we're just going to add to that that she can see it or she can see some of it, but the UK's corruption is orchestrated and yet to most people it, it remains hidden in plain sight um, so perhaps we should be glad that we've got upstanding MPs looking out for standards in Westminster and who better to bring on screen uh, than uh, this gentleman Chris Bryant MP uh, this is a quote from the Guardian article that we've just had on screen uh, that he's talking about the Patterson Tory corruption that happens in Russia. It shouldn't happen in Britain. Right. So um, that's his uh, key statement. He's looking very dapper there. He's got his uh, um, he's got his Popping. poppy on just to make us feel good that this man is upstanding. We'll forget about the photos all over the uh, internet of him standing in his underpants because we really shouldn't be talking about that anymore, of course. So here he is and. Uh, this is a little video that was pointed out to me. It's from an organization called Citizens. And uh, Citizens, we mentioned back on the 1st of November. We're going to look at them again today. But first of all, let's have a look at Chris Bryant speaking in the House on the subject of uh, Owen Patterson. The charges are very serious. The member repeatedly over a sustained period, lobbied officials and ministers on behalf of his paying clients, Randox and Lynn's Foods, from whom he was receiving more than £9,000 a month, as he still is. He pursued their commercial interests. When they, could not, when they could not get meetings with officials and ministers, he used his privileged position as a Member of Parliament to secure them. Providing privileged access is a valuable um, service. He promoted what he called Randox's superior technology. He wanted the government to use Randox's calibration system. He repeatedly used his taxpayer-funded parliamentary office for commercial meetings. This is paid lobbying. In some shape or form, it has been banned since 1695, and expressly so since cash for questions, which brought this House into terrible disrepute in the 1990s. One Conservative member described it to me as a catalogue of bad behaviour. I have yet to meet a Conservative MP who has not said to me he clearly broke the rules. I think that includes the Leader of the House. He says that he was raising serious wrongs, but he did not say so at the time. 
If these were truly serious, you might have expected him to write articles or do interviews in the media, as he was perfectly entitled to do. He did not. He did the one thing he was banned from doing, lobby ministers time and again in a way that conferred a direct benefit on his paying clients. That is expressly forbidden. It is a corrupt practice. So very eloquent. Uh, he's really putting uh, the MP down. Of course, he's standing there in his capacity as chair of the Standards Committee. So I think it's reasonable that the public of UK should understand how Chris Bryant is working. He's putting himself forward as the chair of the Standards Committee. So I went to have a little look into his declared interests. So this is taken straight from Parliament.uk, Register of Men Members' Financial Interests, as at the 23rd of August 2021. And I was very interested in this one. Tucked away under miscellaneous, we come to this, along with For the Citizens Limited, and three other MPs since the 19th of October 2020 have been party to judicial review proceedings crowdfunded through the Citizens, the old workshop, 1 Eccleshaw Road, South Sheffield, S119PA. Total costs incurred to date between the four MPs, which will be capped, are uh, pence. So I was fascinated by this, Mike, that here we've got uh, Chris Bryant, chair of the standards, linked in with citizens, which we mentioned on the 1st of November, because we really weren't sure what the organisation was doing and what it was about. And we're going to focus on that a little bit. First of all, let's just have a look at this Guardian article here, because uh, the headline says it all, legal action taken against the prime minister over refusal to investigate Kremlin meddling. Cross-party group files claim to force inquiry into Russian interference in UK elections. Uh, this article's from the 29th of October 2020. Uh, but if we get into it, what's fascinating is that uh, it talks about the people involved, including Chris Bryant. Down at the bottom, it says all the citizens and non-profit organisations joined the application. The government has 21 days to respond. So let's remind ourselves, here's the citizens. If you try and find out about them, you're in for a shock because there's simply a placeholder that says that there's a new site that's coming soon. But what we can uh, now discover is that they are um, trying to fund themselves to do this important work. So here's Crowdfunder, help fund the work of the citizens and uh, if we uh, get into the uh, text on that particular fundraiser, there's this graphic, we'll be less activist if you be less shit. Apologies from the language, that's what they're saying. We're a small organisation with huge ambitions for our future investigations, activations and strategic litigation. Strategic litigation, Mike. We'd love to pay more of our volunteers so we can keep our team together we want to fund campaigns explaining the complexities of how democracy is being undermined. and We want to take legal action where possible so we can affect real change. And it goes on. Uh, let's just bring the next one in here. The Citizens is a non-profit organisation that holds power to account through investigation, innovative storytelling, creative activa activations and litigation. We really need your support to carry on this vital work. Your funds will amplify the voices of real experts and support our small team of freelancers and volunteers. 
with the team behind Independent Sage, is there such a thing? It's interesting. The real Facebook oversight board and keeping the receipts. So uh, my first question is for either of you, what do you make of what this organization is and why should we have Chris Bryant, Chair of Standards, working with them to prosecute the government? It's a very good question. On their website placeholder page, they say that they're funded through the Ford Foundation and a couple of other uh, tax-exempt foundations, but they're raising money through crowdfunders. So my first question is, are they raising money through crowdfunders so that they can claim, relatively small amounts of money, by the way, so that they can claim uh, that they are you know, funded by the general public rather than by tax-exempt uh, foundations? Uh, I noticed that they have a limited company in the UK, but they also have an incorporation uh, in the United States as well. Um, so what's the connection? How, does the, how do the money flows work between those two uh, organizations? So that there are a lot of questions on this. Uh, David, have you any thoughts? Well, the Ford, the Ford Foundation was one of the tax-exempt foundations, one of the tax-exempt foundations that was mentioned in the, the, the Norman Dodds report. Uh, and uh, that was revealed to be working to change America, uh, American society in such a way that it could be integrated with the Soviet Union seamlessly. Um, so are they still doing that? Of course, we don't know because it's all obscure and we don't know what the agendas are. Uh, neither do we know what the agendas are of the citizens' organisation. Uh, David, this is the key thing, isn't it? A lot of questions we don't know. We don't know what's happening. We don't know what these people are doing. Let's just listen or let's just watch and listen to a couple of clips of citizens talking about itself. This is from the uh, funding page. sort of take it on the chin and allow the disease to move through the population. I cannot let this pass without commenting on the total failure of the government to deliver a fine test, trace, isolate and support system that was fit for purpose in an emergency. After months of delay, Parliament has finally been able to publish its report into allegations of Russian interference in British public life. That no one in government knew if Russia interfered in or sought to influence the referendum because they did not want to know. Well, that's pretty clear. So, that, so they're very much pushing the Russiagate narrative uh, that uh, well, they're clearly anti-Trump as well. Uh, not that, you know, the, the Trump's above all criticism, but nonetheless, this, this is clearly a, 
uh, an organization with with a a particular uh, political political agenda, uh, and, and therefore, and Chris, what's Chris Bryant's connection? How can he possibly be uh, chair of the Standards Committee under these circumstances? Because he he is clearly bought into this, fully bought into this agenda, and in fact. Uh, what was one of the things he, you quoted earlier on? He was bringing Russia back into this argument once again. This yes. is the kind of corruption we would see in Russia. So he's clearly absolutely ideologically anti-Russian. Um, and and, and that, Putin in particular. Yes, and that, that, that uh, supersedes anything else that he does, it seems. Okay, let's just hear the rest of that clip so we've got a full picture and then we'll delve a little bit deeper into citizens. including links to Mauritian offshore companies, city financiers and government advisors. real Facebook oversight board with an advocacy group called The Citizens trying to hold big tech accountable. Our blood will have to be shed before Facebook does anything unless policymakers and all of those who enable Facebook step up and do something. Facebook today, the tech giant banning new political ads in the week before Election Day. I'm honored to be part of this effort, probably the most important effort in my 50-year career in the law. We are watching a coup d'etat in progress. There we are. And if you thought the music was annoying, it's their music, not UK column music. But could all of that have been done with a few tens of thousands of pounds raised on a, uh, a funding page, Mike? No, I think they uh, they clearly have significantly more than, uh, than is appearing on the funding page for sure. Yeah, big money. So let's have a, li a little look in a bit deeper. Sorry, just come back to this one a second. Uh, so here's uh, the citizens tweeting out uh, Johnson's U-turn came shortly after the chair of the Committee on Standards in Public Life described the government's behaviour as a very serious and damaging moment for Parliament and public standards in this country. So there's Owen Padson. Uh, yeah, but uh, they, don't, they don't say uh, that after, the, after our colleague, the chair of the Standards Committee, you know, it's, it's the chair of the committee. Well, they, they don't say that on this tweet, but of course they did have him in the video clip praising him, Mike, so the relationship's pretty clear. But who are the Tories fighting at the moment? Do they think they're just fighting Chris Bryant or are they fighting the citizens and somebody behind that? So um, we looked on uh, Monday, the uh, 1st of November, I think it was, uh, into all the citizens. And here's the address that's mentioned um, with Chris Bryant. So we know we're on the right company. And this takes us through to this single lady, Clara Maguire, as the executive director. No real idea about this lady. There's a bit of a history, but how did she come into such a powerful position? And uh, we also had a look at... Oh, no, no, you need to go back on that one. If we could just... Executive director at the Citizens, head of growth and investment at the Good Lab, 
uh, what's that? The National Endowment for Democracy. Is it not clear whether that is that what NED means? What does that mean? Well, this... I've have, I have had a quick look at some of these, Mike, and most of these are sort of think tank foundation political driver yeah. organisations. We'll do a bit more in due course. But the point I'm making is that Chris Bryant's declared that he's working with this organisation. But what is this organisation? Well, all we can get out of it was what they said on their placeholder page. They were being funded by the Joseph Roundtree Reform Trust. The Ford Foundation was putting in money. This is how they can create such amazing videos and run the court cases. Luminate was in there. Well, now we've got Chris Bryant. Well, what's his relationship? We've no idea because all he says he's working with them. But what does that mean? Uh, this is where it gets interesting, because if we go back a bit, 13th September 2020, and have a look at Wales online, I was interested to see this. It said the EU Russia Centre paid £2,500 to Chris Bryant to send him to Moscow in September 2010 to visit a series of human rights organisations and witness the trial of Mikhail Kordakovsky and Platon Lebedev. So was that lobbying? Would you consider that was lobbying? Well, he was paid to go on a particular mission for somebody, the EU Russia Centre. Yes, it certainly puts him right in the uh, Russian opposition camp, that's for sure. So what is his agenda? He's chair there, supposedly squeaky clean, but we don't quite know what he's doing in the background. And if we dig deeper into just one of these organisations, the Joseph Roundtree Reform Trust, which says it's speaking truth to power, this is some of the funding that they've got in place. And if we highlight the ones coming up in blue are all to do with political activism. And you look there, you've got the Fabian Society, Open Democracy, the Quilliam Foundation. This is all about getting in amongst society, huge block of it here to do with local Lib Dem party uh, work. Um, this is about activism, political activism. This is all about changing society. So this is political um, and it goes on. We've got more here. Conference organising group beyond nuclear, the parliament project. We got hacked off. So we're into control of the media, the electoral reform society, best for our future. Um, Lib Dems come in here again, all political activism that they're funding. And on it goes to the next one, Energy Democracy Project, Vote for Policies, Alliance Party in Northern Ireland. They're active in Northern Ireland as well. Fabian, Open Democracy, Represent Us Limited, Democracy Volunteers. This group from the wings is funding political change in society, but the public, no idea it's going on. Pages of it uh, running through it. Citizens UK, Democracy Volunteers, 50-50 Parliament youth support team. There's open democracy again. On it goes. And uh, they are simply about changing society. So really, we want to ask, uh, what is Chris Bryant actually doing? And let's remember that if we have a look at his CV, of course, in 1995-1997, he was actually there in the London office of Common Purpose, uh, working as a future leader and a change agent for common purpose. So David, I know you're gonna be talking about corruption north of the border. There's a lot of questions to be asked about what our politicians are these days. 
and who are actually supporting them in the wings. That might be financial support, it might be purely political support. Yes, there are a lot of questions, and we might come to this in extra time. Um, Citizens UK, I wonder if it's a missing word. I wonder if the missing word is global. Is it really Global Citizens UK? Is that what they're actually doing, I wonder? Um, I, I'm asking this because it, it transpires that the University of Glasgow um, in 2021, this year, has offered a, a, a course on global citizenship. Um, I, this is an online leadership development program delivered by Common Purpose, a global not-for-profit organization that specializes in cross-boundary leadership. Um, I think there's a lot we need to look into here, Brian, um, and it, it's it's uh, it, it's it's building into a network of influencers of change agents that we've seen before. It's starting to look very familiar. It is indeed. So tell us about north of the border. Ah, well, that is your Christmas stocking, Mr. Gerrish, you see, because Nicola's written a book. Women Hold Up Half the Sky, Selected Speeches of Nicola Sturgeon. How much do you want that, Brian? Eh? Well, That's a to, real page turner. To light my fire before log fires are banned, <laughs> I, I'd actually be quite keen on it. Uh, well, hold on well, a second. Hold on a second. I, hold on a second, David. We can't let this pass. So she's claiming to have written this book, but this is selected speeches. How many of her speeches does Nicola Sturgeon actually write? Oh, I have no idea. I, I would, I would um, say it's a nice I, round I, number. It could well be a nice round number. Um, and, and certainly none of the ideas come from Nicola, even if she writes the words down, because the ideas are all borrowed from elsewhere. But nonetheless... Selected speeches of Nicholas Dodge. And we will try and get Brian a remaindered copy to do his fire lighting. But transpires, gentlemen, there is a problem. Um, Nicholas Sturgeon's book publisher is being probed by fraud cops, writes the Daily Record, over an award of £295,000 of taxpayers' cash. Um, it transpired that uh, officers from the Financial Crimes Unit uh, looking at rules, looking at claims that rules were broken when the Highlands and Islands Enterprise (HIE) awarded grants and loans to Sandstone Press of Inverness, the firm run by ardent nationalist and SNP supporter, and in fascist countries, that's how you get on. Uh, Robert Davidson uh, was given one hundred twenty thousand pounds in twelve months, leading up to the public publication of "Women Hold Up Half the Sky: Selected Speeches of Nicholson." Uh, the Daily Record goes on, we can reveal that Keith Charters, managing director of book firm Strident Publishing, wrote to Sturgeon warning of concerns over Sandstone. Um, his subsequent police complaint is now the subject of an investigation that involves allegations of wrongdoing directed at both the publisher and HIE, as well as £120,000 in grants. Police are probing £175,000 of loans agreed with the company in 2019. Uh, all understood to have been drawn down. Over the last 15 years, Sandstone has benefited from half a million of public money uh, with grants from Creative Scotland, uh, if you also take those into account. The publisher has been accused of making false statements about the number of people employed, while HIE is alleging to have wrongly recorded the location of the firm, which increased its eligibility for financial support. Oh dear. 
we'll watch this one with interest. Well, the good news is it's a pretty hot book, uh, apparently, David, so the firelighting should go well. Uh, luckily, south of the border, we've got the Committee on Standards. I didn't know a lot about it, so I thought I'd just do a little bit of uh, work. And of course, uh, here's the 14 current uh, committee members, including Chris Bryant, top left as chair. Uh, but we've also got some lay people. And my, my eye uh, caught this uh, lady, Melmuda uh, Mian, and that was simply because there was no photo. Now, maybe it's just she hasn't sent the photo in. I don't know. But that's why I selected it, because I thought this is interesting. No photo. Uh, well, this is the lady concerned, uh, founder with the HIV Commission. Uh, she's got a very interesting history, encouraged people to go and have a look into her background. And uh, as I was reading through, I just picked up on this little bit. Currently, uh, uh, Mahmouda is an associate director of the Lakahai Foundation, a social impact charity working alongside community and statutory bodies on innovative programs that pioneer social change. So she's one of the lay members of the uh, Committee on Standards. And obviously it's important that we know the background of people so that we get a feeling for why they're in that position and um, well, what sort of person they are. And we're in no way saying this lady's done anything wrong. We're just highlighting how it's interesting to see what the background of these lay people is. And I have just chosen this one. Um, so when I went to look at the Locker High Foundation itself, I found this building an EU international exchange platform on religion and social inclusion. So all of a sudden we're starting to see political activism in the background for even the lay people who are part of the Standards Committee. And if we blow up a bit of the text here, it says our work is to progress a more diverse harmonious society. We create and deliver effective practical projects which tackle needs and tensions in our communities. Our action group springs from original academic research and thinking on the challenges of faith and culture. From government agencies through to community groups, our engagement is built on core values of, quote, integrity, independence and intellectual rigour. <laughs> so we're very confident. Well, if we get into this uh, EU-sponsored, uh, uh, part 319 had a conclusion and I read it and I thought, wow, because this is what it said. This report has made a case for the importance of engaging religion and religious actors to advance foreign policy goals. So now we've gone from an organisation which is looking after us in the nicest possible way to seeing that it's going to cynically use religion and religious actors to advance foreign policy. Are they talking about ISIS? Well, are they talking? <laughs> who knows what they're talking about, Mike? So I, my question for the public is that once we start looking at the standards board, who exactly are we dealing with? So this is the actual text from the government website, and you can see this lady's background. We're not saying she's done anything wrong. What we're, we're asking is, what exactly is happening here and should the public be aware? Well, it's really the question well, of independence again, isn't it? Independence. So here's another little bit from the local high. It says how we prevented a terrorist attack by building trust between police and local Muslim communities. This is a politically active organisation. So was that fully declared? I don't, 
I don't think it was. And I think that's the government's responsibility, not necessarily even the members of the Standards Committee. Yes. Uh, well, not much happening at COP26 as far as we can see, but we just thought we would uh, mention this again, because if you remember last week, uh, Rishi Sunak was taking credit for apparently uh, aligning $130 trillion of assets uh, of, from 500 financial services firms, uh, absolutely aligning that towards the goals of COP26 and particularly the Paris Agreement, which is the 1.5 degrees target. Um, well, was it Rishi's deal or was it somebody else's? Well, the Financial Times thinks it was Mark Carney's idea. Really, it wasn't anything Rishi should be taking uh, uh, credit for. Uh, and so they published this, uh, uh, we might call it an opinion piece at the end of last week. Um, and uh, the headline there is COP26. Uh, Carney's $130 trillion climate package is too big to be credible. Uh, so they say that, uh, uh, or they, they suggest that Carney might need to be careful because of the dangers of over-promising and under-delivering, uh, that uh, uh, the whole thing is going to require huge state intervention and investment. Uh, there are problems with the figure of $130 trillion, they said, uh, loosely thrown around uh, by Carney uh, and by Rishi Sunak. Uh, the group of uh, banks, fund managers, and insurers uh, in particular are problematic. First, if, there, if, if it were an investment fund, as some as observers wrongly assumed, it would be insanely large. The financial sector would be, committed as, would be committing a sum six times larger than the annual gross domestic product of the United States. The market capitalization of the world's stock markets is only about $120 trillion. Uh, they go on to say the uh, $130 trillion is not ready funds, but total assets managed by member financial institutions. And then they say that $130 trillion may still be wrong, uh, even as an aggregate of members' assets. Banks, banks account for half of the total, and banks habitually count single assets several times through chains of lending. Um, and then they quote uh, economist J.K. Galbraith in his book, Money, uh, saw through this multiple accounting. Asset managers, the other half of uh, uh, their membership of this group, uh, do something similar when they subcontract specialist fund management to one another. Uh, the implication of this number is that finance is greening the world, uh, and uh, the reality is that the carbon transition will require huge state intervention and investment. The risk for GFANS, as they're calling it, is that having overpromised financial uh, private finance will now underdeliver. Is that really the risk, David? Do you think? No, 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 no. The risk is the risk is this this fraudulent um, policy will actually impoverish the whole world. Um, I thought one thing that did come out from that though was was that Mark Carney is not fit for purpose. Uh, I don't think he ever has been. But let's uh, move on then to the Mail and world's top climate scientists told to cover up the fact that Earth's temperature hasn't risen for the last fifteen years. Now this is from twenty thirteen. Yes. Course, but Go ahead. Um, well, th this is um, yes, it's from 2013, and um, but it, it still hasn't risen. And th they're talking about 15 years from 1998, and it still hasn't risen. And we're 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 wondering when the actual lack of temperature rise will be discussed. Right, okay, it was discussed. It was discussed a little bit back in 2013, and well done the mail for doing that. But we've just had this, you know, 
week and a half now of of um, hype in Glasgow, and will this ever actually get looked at? When will we start to look at the figures? Same as COVID. When will we look at the figures? Because the figures show an entirely different narrative from the political spin. Why are we not looking at the figures? Um, just just um, back to this um, uh, uh, 2013 report here, uh, they were talking about 15 years, no temperature rise. They were talking about um, countries complaining about the report, pointing this out. Um, Germany wanting to um, change the time span so that it, it looked better. They were talking about it was misleading. It should focus on decades or centuries. And we've seen this as, as well. This time, this movable time span, we go from uh, it's very, very long term. And when that's questioned, oh, no, we need to we need action now. It's very, very urgent. And when that's questioned, it goes back to being long term. The whole science is built on shifting sand. It's 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 trying to get anything specific to discuss is nearly impossible. I just wonder when we'll start to look at the figures in a mature and reasoned fashion. Um, so let's uh, head over to Australia then, uh, David and, and Alan Jones, who of course has been building, building a bit of a reputation for himself uh, on Sky News Australia with and well maybe no longer, but nonetheless, uh, he had some things to say recently. Yes, this, this is uh, from a sort of question time-like panel, uh, but he said similar things on his own programmes uh, and on news programmes from for, uh, for Sky Australia. And he, again, is quoting figures and asking for the figures to be thought about. Oh when I asked... Well, just a moment, Alice, you've been speaking for most of the night. When I, when, when I, when I asked Tanya Plibersek... We'll fact-check that one for you. Yes. When I asked Tanya Plibersek, was the Deputy Leader of the Labour Party and the potential Deputy Prime Minister, was carbon dioxide the big issue in relation to climate change? And she said yes. I then said, well, that being the case, what percentage of the atmosphere is made up of carbon dioxide? And she said, I don't know. And I said, hang on, you don't know what percentage of the atmosphere is carbon dioxide, and yet you're prepared to stand the economy on its head to address a problem, the detail of which you don't know. So when I then explained that the percentage of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, Alice, is how much? Alice, how much of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere? To answer Alice? the question, Scott Morrison has said he's Al in climate much? change Alice, and that much? he wants to do something about Alice, it. Alice, how much carbon dioxide is the problem? How much carbon dioxide is there in the atmosphere? I'm not a scientist. I don't oh. know. I'm a well, hang on. If you're going to argue the case, you ought to know. It's 0.04 of a percent. And of that 0.04 of a percent, human beings around the world create 3%. And of that 3%, Australia creates 1.3%. So for the 1.3% of 3% of 0.04%, we then decide <laughs> to have a national economic suicide. Alan, now, Alan, you're Alan, going Alan, to... Alan, I'm, I'm happy Please. for you to... Well, they didn't like that. No, because they couldn't cope with it. No, uh, and they didn't. And I would point out that now that uh, the CO2 emissions from Britain have been roughly halved, we had about the same figures. It's about 1%. Of, of human contribution. So it's 1% of 3% and 0.04% from the UK. And that's why we're going to uh, completely trash the economy here as well. Now, comments like this, and he's been equally outspoken on lockdown, mask wearing, COVID, um, compulsory vaccines, and a whole lot of other subjects uh, very close to the heart of um, the UK column. Um, 
he's now no longer employed, it would seem. Uh, we see here that the, the advertising Jones Skyfall. Alan Jones departs Sky News Australia after his weekend show is cancelled. Will this be the end of his media career? Well, let's hope not. Uh, but it certainly seems that he's been saying things, and it's been very much the, outstand, the outstanding um, broadcasts from Australia, been coming from Australia's Sky News. Um, very courageous, very hard-hitting. Um, and that seems to have been having too much of an effect, and now he, it would appear, has been cancelled. And um, I, just to sort of round this segment off, I would point out that the, the lack of any reason and scientific basis for the hype is what's come out of Glasgow COP26 more than anything else. Here we have Greta, uh, Greta Thunberg, climate activist, and her quote is, I want you to act as if the house is on fire because it is. So it's all immediate, it's all panic, it's all emotion. And, and we contrast this with uh, Richard uh, Lindzen, atmospheric physicist of MIT, the influence of mankind on climate is trivially true and numerically insignificant. So no panic there. Um, more and more we're seeing this, that the, the utter disconnect between anything that even a corrupted and compromised science might be generating and the political narrative is more or less complete, more, of, more or not an extra time if we can. Uh, and I'll leave the, first, the final word on this section uh, with Bugs Bunny. And Bugs says, uh, you are the carbon they want to reduce. And this is exactly true. And we have the evidence to prove it because the Club of Rome said uh, that, that humanity then is the enemy in their report on uh, a first global revolution. Uh, and David, just uh, a couple of thoughts on this, because I saw this on, on uh, the uh, Plymouth Herald this morning on the Plymouth Herald website, and the headline is COP26 and the fight for the planet. Uh, what are you doing to help fill in our survey? But I just thought, and the fight for the planet, uh, uh, if we added and the fight for control of the planet, that might be more appropriate, but that seems to be what this is about. Well, this is it. It's all about control. It's all about lies um, and 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 deception to gain control. Remember that um, we've been told on the one hand that we need urgent action. It must be now. It must be immediate. This is the, the drumbeat from the activists. But if you go and look at the science, even accepting everything that the IPCC say, even accepting all of it, what do they show? They show that global warming is beneficial for many, many years and is only harmful way out in the future and only for certain parts of the globe. So the, the, there is no scientific basis for the panic, even if you believe a, a, a scientific uh, effort that I think is, is very, very much compromised and is open to a great deal of criticism and doubt. But even if you believe it, it doesn't justify any of the political pronouncements uh, that are coming out of people like Boris Johnson uh, and the rest. Yeah, okay. Well, we're pretty much out of time. Brian, was there something you I, wanted to just cover? I, I think we just need to uh, probably, date. well, let's ask David. David, out, out of the remainder, do you want to go for the US military or do you want to go for boys in skirts? No, I... I I, I, no, I think there's too much. Let's let's leave it till extra time. There's lots to talk about in extra time. 
Um, I'd, I'd like to finish. I've got a song here. It's from Scotland. It's quite raucous. It's what you might term punk rock. And it's, uh, it's entitled Your Government Loves You. And uh, I'd like to finish on a little extract from that, if we may. Okay. people find more of that David um, that's uh, from uh, William Wallace protest songs it's on YouTube uh, if you if you go into YouTube and search for your government loves you you'll find that and uh, hopefully soon more besides okay brilliant thank you that's it I'm going to say thank you big thank you to all our audience for joining us today if you like what we do and you're not yet a subscriber for UK Column, perhaps you'll join us because we can only do what we do with your help and support and our intention is to grow. Uh, I'll be back in a couple of minutes on the main live stream if you're a UK Column member for some extra. And uh, otherwise, we'll be back 1pm on Wednesday as usual. See you then. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.